You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. 5.2 billion euro, 50 different measures, a stimulus plan aimed at kick-starting the post-COVID-19 economy with targeted schemes for businesses, workers and consumers. It's this government's grand master plan, but has been described as miserly and lacking ambition by the opposition. So what's involved? And will it work? We're joined now by Antishuk Michal Martin, who is in our Dáil studio. Good morning, Tishuk. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Good to you. Now, Tishuk, announcing these measures, you said you considered the hospitality sector to be the worst hit by the pandemic, yet they were looking for their VAT rate to be reduced from 13.5% to 9%. Why did you not do that? Well, there was a comprehensive um, set of measures there for the tourism industry and for business in general, specifically the restart grant, the commercial rates relief, uh, the um, tax relief in terms of losses this year to be set against profits last year, uh, both on income, uh, both on corporate, uh, corporation, corporation tax and, and on income tax, uh, and also um, specific measures for the tourism and hospitality sector in relation to the stay uh, and spend initiative, which will be more concentrated uh, and will trigger um, the spending by consumers um, of money on food and accommodation in the difficult months uh, from from uh, the autumn onwards, which I think is a more concentrated and focused uh, prioritisation of the sector, which I think will yield results. Uh, and this July stimulus programme you know, is designed um, to, first of all, ensure that companies can stay intact, both in tourism and in every sector. So that's why the uh, employment wage subsidy uh, scheme is the key plank of this, uh, along with the continuation and extension of the pandemic on, pandemic on employment payment and the commercial rates relief with the restart grants. Combine it all together uh, with a VAT reduction of 2%, you have a fairly significant and powerful stimulus um, that will enable companies uh, to look with certainty from now to next April in terms of surviving and getting through the COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, we do have a budget in October. We will review the situation then again uh, because this is an ongoing situation and the government is er- ever alert to the need to protect jobs in our economy, but also to enable the survival of companies so that they will be, have the capacity to reboot uh, and, and develop uh, once uh, we get over this uh, particular crisis. So are you saying you might look again at the VAT rate in the October No, I'm budget? just giving you the overall general okay. uh, approach of government okay, in terms of, of, of both the stimulus packet, pa- package. We then prepare uh, a more medium term uh, economic plan and we have the budget. All right. Now, you mentioned there the stay and spend incentive. Let's look at that for a moment. Mm-hmm. It's a tax credit. It's not a voucher. You need to have the money to spend up front. For every €25 you spend, you'll eventually get €5 back against your taxes up to a maximum of a €625 spend. There's no benefit there, though, for lower paid people, those below the tax threshold, unemployed people. Well, it applies both to tax and to the USC. Uh, the primary purpose of that is to support the industry and to support the sector there uh, and to trigger um, the spend because we do note in, in the economy right now that there has been su- su- a significant accumulation of savings uh, and we, you know, we want to get some of that savings back into the economy to protect jobs and to create jobs, particularly in the, in the hospitality sector. And we needed to do it quickly. Uh, and the most effective systems-wide way to do it is through the taxation uh, uh, method and, and and that is why that has been adopted uh, so that we can have a quick um, injection of spend into the hospitality and tourism sector. Remember this is three weeks after the government has been formed and we've managed to put together the largest ever cash injection into the Irish economy in its history uh, and that's we want to do it with speed we want to do it with effect uh, and that's the reason why this particular model uh, has been chosen uh, in terms of both management of it uh, and in terms of targeting it quickly to the industry. We had Pierce Doherty of Sinn Féin on the programme a little earlier and he said you've made a mess of that incentive, that it's unfair, that there are a million people who won't be able to avail of it. I think it's disappointing that, you know, um, uh, Pierce Doherty comes out again with just a very negative uh, sloganeering type outbursts uh, against what is a very comprehensive and significant package uh, to protect jobs and save jobs. Remember, that's the focus of this. Uh, And he focuses in on one uh, element of it uh, and forgets, of course, the fact that 
that there's a, a very substantial package for uh, labour activation and for additional uh, uh, courses and reskilling initiatives because we also want to redirect the economy. So there's significant funding there for retrofitting initiatives. We want to create new jobs in new areas. Uh, and to enable us to do that, we do have to uh, fund a whole range of skills programmes uh, to help young people in particular or, or, or people who are out of one particular job to adapt and to reskill uh, and to get jobs in sectors of the economy that are thriving. For example, on the digital side of the economy, many companies are recruiting additional staff, uh, but we, therefore we need to uh, train fast technicians uh, and, and other types of skill sets uh, through our institutes of technology, through the, uh, the further education colleges, um, so that people could avail of those jobs. Uh, and so, it's, whereas the initial focus has always been about underpinning and protecting jobs, we're now beginning to look at new sectors where we can create jobs. The investment in the rec uh, reclamation of bogs, for example, will create additional jobs and different types of jobs. Uh, and that's will be the development of cycleways, greenways and so on will create jobs. And remember, in every parish in this country, uh, small trades, small business builders, uh, tradespeople will benefit from the minor capital work scheme, a doubling of that for every single school in the country. So we want to reach into the regions, into rural Ireland, uh, to make sure that there's enough cash around to keep people at work. Uh, and that's been the overarching objective um, of this um, initiative. Okay, now a big part of the initiative as well is the extension of the pandemic unemployment payment and the wage subsidy scheme, something that employers and employees will welcome. It's going till the end of March. Is that an acknowledgement that the pandemic and the economic fallout from it will be with us until at least then, that you don't expect any sort of normality back? Uh, it is, it is, and it, it also is designed to give certainty um, to uh, the economy uh, and to employers uh, and to workers. And it's also designed also to phase it out in a reasonable way. Uh, I think people were very worried, um, you know, when it was first introduced that there would be a cliff at which people would fall off the rates that they were on almost immediately. Uh, by this design, we are phasing it out over a longer term. I mean, it'll cost 300 million, I think, to the end of this year and a 400 million next year. Uh, so it's very significant uh, funding uh, allocated to it. Um, but it also gives us an opportunity, as I said earlier, to reorientate uh, people to newer jobs as well as they come off the pandemic unemployment payment. And that is important, that we give people an opportunity to train and, 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 and develop new skills uh, and be in a position to take up jobs in, in different sectors um, of the economy. Okay, now the stepping down though from €350 Euro to €203 Euro by April 1st, it's quite dramatic and it will make it a very tough winter for many people. It, it, it is, um, uh, it is it's in itself um, significant, but I think many people knew or or of a view that it would be of, of a much shorter term um, duration. Uh, but what we're doing now is extending it um, and giving people opportunities to secure jobs in alternative areas. But I would say that the incomes will be still, even with those reductions, would be broadly similar to what people would have been earning prior to going on the pandemic unemployment uh, payment. So it is related to their prior income before the pandemic unemployment payment came into being. Uh, and so it is designed to try and minimise uh, as much difficulty as possible um, for families. And there will be other supports there, uh, particularly in terms of the back to school allowance and other uh, supports within the social protection system to help people get through what is a very difficult uh, period and, and will be for many families. And you did sum it up there yourself when you said we're in, we have to learn to live with this pandemic for quite a considerable time to come. Uh, and that's the balance that government uh, is seeking to achieve in terms of reopening the economy and society whilst keeping the prevalence of the virus down. But what if this plan doesn't work? This plan will work. Um, and... In, 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 and it's designed, we brought it in immediately after the formation of government within three weeks, uh, as opposed to waiting until the budget with a view to giving that cash injection. But government will continue um, to oversee this. Uh, we have a budget coming up um, and then after, and then the economic plan that we are developing. So we're not standing still in terms of this. This isn't the end of the story in terms of uh, the Irish economy and, 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 and COVID-19. OK, now you've brought uh, it in quickly, as you said, just a couple of weeks after government formation, but how quickly will businesses be actually be able to get their hands on this cash injection? They're crying out for cash flow. Very quickly. Uh, and we, well, what's very quickly? Weeks, months well, before sorry, the well, end well, of the, the year? 
end the wage employment subsidies immediately, and that would work in, in tandem with the outgoing temporary wage subsidy scheme. The pandemic unemployment payment will continue as well. But the various uh, the grants you're talking Well, the commercial about. rates relief, for example, that's a huge, by the way, that's a huge significant benefit. It'll now be of six months. Uh, those who didn't weren't in a position to avail of it originally will now. Uh, that's over 600 million, and that will, will, will be released. Um, uh, quickly to the local authorities and will have an immediate impact because people will simply not have to pay. Um, so I think it, all of those measures and particularly the tax relief measures as well, when you combine all of those, I think it gives businesses more than a fighting chance to say, look, we now know where we are going out to next April. We have a fighting chance of keeping our businesses intact and getting through COVID-19. This package gives hope and confidence to businesses that have already proven themselves to be very resilient, very tough. Their DNA is to stay in business, to employ people. They're committed to their workforce, as many of our small to medium-sized companies are and continue to be. This package gives them hope, confidence and a degree of certainty as to what the outlook is in terms of government supports from now until next April. Uh, and we will build on that and we will work to make sure that we keep the essential fabric of the Irish enterprise economy intact over the coming months. Okay, now getting people back to work, keeping people in jobs, a big part of that is what do they do with their children? And we'll talk about reopening schools in a moment. You've mentioned a 75 million euro fund for minor works for primary and secondary schools. But is there anything in there for childcare providers? They'll obviously benefit from the wage subsidy scheme and so on. But they were looking for a continuation of their reopening grants. Are you doing anything for them there? They will benefit from the full range of measures, which are not, as I, say, I said earlier, insignificant. And government will continue to f- focus on the child care sector and will uh, have uh, an examination of that sector uh, in addition to all the measures we've taken, because we do accept and uh, want the child care sector above all, not just to remain intact, but to be in a position to provide comprehensive child care um, uh, over the next of the next while, and and that, but there's nothing that, uh, specific well, in there for well, them. Well, well, there is in a whole range of specifics. For the, them. I mean, um, I, I couldn't find any mention of something no, that sorry, expressly said for childcare providers. No, but wage subsidy schemes, the tax relief, all of that helps. You know, um, you know, we, this was a comprehensive set of measures designed to keep enterprises in every sector intact. But over and above that, uh, we will be specifically looking at the childcare sector uh, with a view to ensuring viability over the coming while and also you know, ensuring that it's affordable for parents, uh, which is a key uh, part of the equation as well. Absolutely. Now, on the issue of reopening schools, you've repeatedly spoken about how that's a priority for you. It's something close to your heart. Um, Eamon Ryan said on this programme earlier that it will be another week or two before plans are unveiled on how to reopen the country's schools. Is that correct? It's going, the discussions have been going well. Um, they've been thorough. Um, a lot of detailed work is underway, has been underway. Uh, I'll be getting an update later today myself from the Minister and the Department. Um, there's a, a, a government-wide uh, and a keen commitment within the education community as well uh, to open our schools safely and to get our children back into the schools. I've repeatedly said the priority is the, ch- is the child in, in the classroom, the development of the child, we don't want to limit the life chances of children by keeping them out of school for too long. That's, that's why I'm very passionate as a former teacher, a former Minister for Education, uh, to enable this to happen. The Minister, Norma Foley, has been working with our department officials and crucially with all of the stakeholders in education to make sure that this happens. And separate from the grant scheme, of course, there would be a significant package of supports to enable schools to reopen. So we will be in a position hopefully next week, uh, to announce comprehensively uh, the measures that designed to enable our schools to reopen. Next week is almost August. As you say, you're a former teacher. Is that good enough to leave it that close to getting our schools open, to still not have a plan? I think it's, it, 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 it will be, a, uh, to me, a very significant milestone in our dealing with COVID-19 uh, to have our schools open. I do, I didn't and I don't want, think anyone no, disagrees yeah, with I, that, but you know as a teacher yourself, as a former Minister for Education, how long it takes to get schools up and running. Teachers don't just go in there the day before the students do. They need to know what is happening. They need to know how to lay out their classrooms. They need to know how they're going to pay for cleaners, yeah. hand sanitizers, substitute but teachers and but so that, on. But all that work is underway. That's the point I'm making. It's but underway. I, oh, it's not completed. No, no, what I didn't want was a drip feed 
of, inf- of information, people saying one thing one week and uh, another thing the second week. Uh, it's better off to do a comprehensive announcement and it will be well in time uh, and the stakeholders realise and know what's being planned because they've been working with the department in relation to all of those issues that you have identified. Uh, and, you know, I, I think we're in a relatively good space right now in terms of preparations. There are challenges. We want to do it safely, but above all, we want to do it to ensure uh, the education and development of our children. Uh, and that's the priority. Uh, and that's something we've been very focused on. And I particularly as teacher have been focused on uh, since this government uh, was formed along with the Taunish Town uh, Minister Eamon Ryan. Uh, and that is with the Minister Norma Foley, uh, who has been working with the, with the, the partners uh, and they've put together uh, 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 a comprehensive plan in, in relation to this. OK, and we'll await that announcement next week then, as you say. Now, just moving on, we saw this week the unveiling of the Green List. Uh, you said yourself, leaders' questions, 134,000 passengers have come through Dublin Airport in the first two weeks of this month. We have figures that show just less than 7% of them are getting follow-up calls to check they're restricting their movements. With the change to travel advice for green list countries, are you leaving the country exposed to unnecessary risk here? Well, I made that figure of 134,000 in the context of what happened the same time last year when 1.4 million people came into Dublin Airport and out of Dublin Airport because I wanted to keep this debate in perspective. Uh, you, you spoke to me earlier about the lack of specific or you know, what some were saying in terms of lack of specific measures for the hospitality and travel. The reason travel and hospitality and tourism is on the floor is because people aren't coming into Ireland in anywhere near the numbers that they came in last year and prior to COVID. That said, uh, in relation to those that are coming in and some are are, are Irish citizens returning, uh, uh, what is happening is we acknowledge that more needs to be done in relation to uh, the follow-up and that is why uh, there will be more uh, there will be an electronic locator form replacing the, the paper locator form. There will be a call centre established and there will be, more, there will be a more intensive follow-up um, of people who arrive in Ireland. And we're also exploring measures uh, in in relation to travel from hotspot areas where the, the virus prevalence is high uh, to, to restrict uh, and, and to make it uh, you know, make it more uh, challenging in terms of coming into the country or, or at least taking uh, precautionary measures in terms of tests in advance of coming in. Okay, uh, so, so you're, there you're be happy with measures the measures there. that are there. Uh, and, and, you know, again, the, the issue for us is, is, is it goes back to behaviour. And, I, I, you know, I welcome what Ronan, the Dr. Ronan Glynn is saying to CMO. I think our decision to pause uh, stage four, we took a lot of heat for not uh, opening the pubs um, and putting it back to the 10th of August. But I think that sent a, a very strong message to the public that we can't be complacent about the virus, social distancing, uh, washing our hands, um, the, the key etiquette, that is the key uh, to preventing the spread of, of the virus. Okay, and now you're, you're talking yeah. about taking a lot of heat there. The first few weeks of your leadership, your, your role as Taoiseach were dominated by internal Fianna Fáil discord in many ways. Derek Leary, then Barry Cowan, the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party this week, losing the vote on the last Ken Corla in the Dáil yesterday. Has your leadership been weakened by all of this? Absolutely not. Uh, I think I've been very focused on the, the substance of government taking decisions that uh, impact on people's lives. Um, and that you know, has been focused on COVID-19 in itself. And I've outlined the measures, measures we've taken, not just in terms of pausing uh, phase four, but the Tracker Act, app sorry, has been hugely downloaded. The decision to make masks compulsory in public transport. In terms of the economy, we've had the job stimulus um, initiative. In terms of legislation, uh, up to 10 pieces of legislation will be passed this month. Uh, a very intensive legislative workload. And I work hard with our government colleagues and the Attorney General's office to make sure that that legislation was produced not only to underpin the economy but to take other vital measures uh, in terms of, of, of in the longer term uh, protecting tenants uh, who could be in difficulty uh, in, in terms of rent arrears and in, in, in potential evictions not just for now but well into the into the future. So okay, you know, but you did we, still but, but manage I, I, to to lose a vote yeah, in the door yesterday, and we've seen yeah. not just bickering inside your own party. There's also this curious situation where your coalition partner Thonish, the lead Leo Radker, is pre- spreading mixed messages in relation to the publication of the green list earlier this week, bemoaning how our schools weren't open in the door last week when he has a role in all of this. Are you a unified force, or is it as the Labour leader Alan Kelly said this week? He's beginning to wonder which of you is the Taoiseach. Ah, look, that's the, that's the 
the soap opera of politics that Ellen Kelly and others will engage in. I am very focused on policy and substance. So I have experience in government. Uh, there can be a whole load of narrative on one side of the political uh, debate. But the most important thing for me as Taoiseach is to keep the focus, the eye on the ball. And for me, that is doing what matters to the Irish people. Uh, and that is the, making sure we have a good quality of life for people, that we give opportunities for our young people, that we protect jobs, protect businesses, develop our education system, create access to housing, create access to our health services, even in the context of COVID, which is a very significant priority, notwithstanding the challenges, uh, and making sure overall that in terms of the green uh, dimension, that we really make meaningful change there. Uh, and this stimulus plan helps us in terms of the cycleways and investment in greenways um, and the reclamation uh, and the retrofitting, sorry, and, uh, and reclaiming of, of peatlands. All of that is what, what I am focused on. We have a programme for government. The, myself, Tatonishta, and uh, Minister Eamon Ryan remain very focused on ensuring the implementation of the programme for government. And I will not be distracted um, uh, from that. And I think in terms of the Doyle vote yesterday, uh, I, I'm very disappointed for Fergus personally, because uh, I think he's a very experienced and has been a very able parliamentarian. I wish Catherine uh, kind of every success. Uh, has been a, She's been a good chair herself in, in substituting for the, the, the Keown Corla from time to time. What it does reflect is, I think, where you have a secret ballot, and that was the whole design of it when we were approached by okay. political scientists some time ago, it was to give Parliament greater autonomy and that what you witnessed yesterday is a manifestation of that. Yes, and you're not in control of the outcome with the secret ballot, as we all know. Certainly we'll not, no. no, no <laughs> well, no, we'll no, have no. to leave it there. As you say, unified force in government. Um, we will leave it there. Taoiseach Michal Martin, thanks for speaking to us this morning. Ruth had a sparkle to her smile, her wit and her intelligence. That sparkle made her wonderful company and her friendship was a gift she gave generously to anyone who knew her. The words of Paul Morrissey, grieving for his wife Ruth, who died yesterday morning at the age of 39. Ruth was one of the women whose cervical cancer had been missed during screening and who hadn't been given that information until Vicky Phelan won her case in 2018. By that time, Ruth was terminally ill after being initially diagnosed in 2014. We are joined now by cervical cancer survivor Lorraine Walsh, who had much contact with Ruth during her illness. Lorraine, thank you for joining us on Morning Ireland today. How will you remember Ruth? Good morning, Audrey. Um, it's 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 a very sad day for for Paul and Libby and, and Ruth's family, but also for the women of Ireland and for us other ladies that have been involved in the cervical check scandal. Um, Ruth was a kind, gentle lady. She was a real lady, um, such a lovely person, um, and never a complainer. Um, but you know, she she fought a really hard battle for herself and for all the rest of us. But sadly, she lost that battle to this horrible disease that is cervical cancer. It's just a disgusting disease, um, you know, but she she fought hard um, and she did so much for the rest of us as well. I mean, the state um, battled with her every day of her life for the last two years. They brought her into the high court, um, but she proved that cervical check in the state had let her down and there was a breach of duty of care. They fought her again and they brought her to the Supreme Court and she she proved yet again that there was a breach of duty of care, which ultimately cost her her life. But I'm, I'm just sad for Ruth that she had to spend so long of the last two years of her life fighting for what was right and fighting for the truth and fighting for justice when she should have been spending that time with her lovely husband and her, her gorgeous daughter, Libby. Um, it's just shocking. Now what toll that, did that, that take had. on her, Lorraine? Well, you know, she, she she has been very unwell over the last two years, spent, you know, a lot of time in hospice and had a lot of pain, a lot of discomfort. She had lymphedema, which was very debilitating for her as well. So, you know, you know, the most important thing when you're very ill is to put all your energy into um, trying to, to fight this and, and trying to spend the most time with her family. I mean, the stress and pressure of... High Court and Supreme Court, on top of all that, had to have had a huge burden on her mind. Um, and I suppose knowing that she wanted to get justice, but she also wanted to ensure that her husband and her daughter were provided for, you know, after 
after her her time was up um and she shouldn't have to have fought for that so hard uh but the state and the hse fought her and fought her and i mean if we look back even on the day of the state apology in the doll when when the the tishak was actually giving the state apology to all of us that day the hse were fighting with another woman that is terminally ill as well in the court that day another woman that had to prove a, a breach of duty of care that has also cost her her life and she is fighting to to stay alive now yet another one see you know we're we're two years on from when this whole thing started and we're no further on we still have these women having to fight the hse in the state for for what they have done to them and how they have let them down it's shocking Let me read a a little bit more from Paul Morrissey's statement yesterday. He said, despite the magnitude of the harm caused to her by avoidable errors, despite the broken promise of a Taoiseach who said no other woman would have to go on trial, despite using Ruth as a test case through the final months and years of her life, neither the HSE nor the state has ever apologised to her and now it is too late. There is understandable great anger there in those words, Lorraine. Of course. I mean, the man has just lost his whole life. He has lost an amazing woman, an amazing partner, an amazing mother. And, you know, he's bitter and angry, I'm sure, for being robbed. And I mean, we now know that it's this didn't happen and it wasn't just fate that it happened. This happened because uh, the cervical check programme was not fit for purpose. Uh, her smears were not read correctly. And now he knows that she should be alive and she shouldn't have had to, I suppose, have the ultimate sacrifice of losing her life because of this. If it, if she had been looked after properly and her smears had been read correctly, she she could have had treatment and she would be out of this. Or, or maybe her cancer may have never developed. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a different kettle of fish that he now knows and has proven in not only the High Court, but the Supreme Court, that her life, she should still have her life. And the Nye Thornish issued a statement yesterday evening uh, sympathising with Ruth's family, but also adding that he gave a formal state apology to all the women and their families in October 2019. But presumably, and as you referenced, Lorraine, just a moment ago, at the same time of the state apology, uh, the state was still fighting Ruth Morrissey in the courts. Well, Ruth took on a huge burden in that her case was a test case. She had to spend 36 days in the High Court um, initially for her case. Uh, And valuable time that she should have been spending with Paul and Libby, not fighting for justice. But in doing that, she has proven her case and she has proven that cervical check was not fit for purpose in a high court and a Supreme Court, and she has done that for everybody else as well. So, you know, her legacy will live on. Um, But sadly for her husband and daughter, you know, they have lost the most precious person in their lives, a a lovely, caring, gentle lady, and that can never be replaced. Lorraine, we appreciate you. We appreciate you very much paying tribute to uh, Ruth Morrissey this morning. Thank you. And just to finish, another line from that statement from Paul was chief among her accomplishments was the love that she and Paul shared and the wonderful daughter they brought into the world and raised with love. And we send them our deepest sympathies this morning. A new report suggests more debate is needed on the potential culling of predators such as crows and foxes as a way of protecting Europe's ever-declining number of ground-nesting birds. Researchers at University College Dublin and the University of Aberdeen have found that across the continent, 74% of ground-nesting bird species are in decline, almost double the rate of other species. Joining us now is one of the study's authors, Dr... Um, Barry McMahon of UCD. Thanks so much for talking to us this morning. Can you talk to us, first of all, about the threatened species? What's been happening to them? Uh, Good morning, Rachel. Um, So essentially what we have noticed or what this specific study looked at was um, the fact that we know that birds in Europe are declining in general. 
Um, and there have been particular studies looking at different habitat types in forestry and agriculture, etc. But what we wanted to look at specifically was, were there specific you know, characteristics in relation to where birds nest and how they nested and were these birds, you know, disproportionately declining in relation to other species. And as you outlined uh, in the major findings that when you look across three different sort of data sets in terms of Europe, in terms of Britain and in terms of Ireland, if you are a ground nesting bird, you are declining at a greater rate than other species that are not ground nesting. Which and species are you talking about? Sorry to interrupt you there. I was just wondering yeah, which prob- species you're talking about. Yeah, sorry to answer your first question. Yeah, the, the species that we would sort of would have been really, really evident in terms of the, the species from an Irish perspective would have been species like curlew, corncrake, grey partridge, um, you know, other species like dunlan. Um, but other species of tern uh, as well would, would have been adversely affected. So how much of a threat is posed by predators like crows and foxes? Well, I mean, what this study shows is that if you are more prone to predation, you are more likely to be in decline. So what the message or what we would sort of take in relation to the findings of this study is that we as humans have created a landscape in which these particular ground nesting birds are more prone to predation. So we have created landscapes that make it easier for predators to prey on these ground nesting species when they are uh, incubating their eggs or when they are dealing with um, young before they fledge. So that means that it's really, really difficult for these birds to reproduce at a substantial enough rate so that they can... um, sort of fulfil the population requirements so that they can come back and breed the following year, if that this makes is, sense. Yeah, this is such a sensitive subject, isn't it? Because anecdotally, at least, I think people have become more and more fond of foxes. And certainly in urban areas, one of the consequences of the lockdown was that wildlife tended to relax a bit, become a bit braver, and we all saw more foxes. Well, I, I mean... This is, this is a really, really challenging subject uh, because, uh, as I talked to your researcher beforehand, there, uh, this sort of splits the, the, the conservation groups and splits the conservation action networks because it is divisive. So um, what we would argue in relation to this, like there's no doubt if you want to, 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 to deal with creating more effective populations, you need to restore the habitats. But if we wait to restore the habitats in relation to many of these species, the species will not exist in Ireland. The, the data show that the birds are declining at such a rapid rate that there will, be, will not be enough species for uh, them to hang on in the ha- uh, while the, the habitat is restored. And therefore, we need to intervene at a population level to assist the populations, to remove some of the predators, to take some of the ease of uh, the predator pressure. So you need a sort of a systematic professional predator control to enable some of these species to to restore their levels so that they can maintain. I mean, I'm not talking at a long term, Rachel, I'm Mm -hmm. talking next 5, 10, 15 years. And, you know, some of the calculations would indicate that we will not have curlew if we don't do something quite drastically in the next 5 to 10 years. Wow, that's a terrible thought. Dr. Barry McMahon, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Eamon Ryan has been re-elected as leader of the Green Party, beating the party's deputy leader Catherine Martin by 994 votes to 946. She called on members to support his leadership, but said it was time to reform the party. I think now is really the time for us to move forward together. Um, It has been um, a difficult period for the Green Party the the last few months. Um, I, I... I'm looking forward to working with them at Cabinet and, and in the leadership um, to, for the party to, to unite the party and move forward and heal division. We lost some members today, some, some you know, very, very good members. And I think uh, the first thing we have to do now um, is sit down and you know, to, to critically look at that and, and why are we losing good people and what can we do to, to change that. Um, because yes, we've had a debate between the program for government and, and the leadership where diversity of opinion and 
has been expressed, but I believe we need to be embracing that diversity of opinion and be a welcoming space for that. I think it's good for us uh, as a party to challenge each other um, on this new journey that we're on. Um, and I, I think that maybe we need to reform the party in some way to show that all voices uh, are welcome, appreciated, and most importantly, valued. Um, and that there, there is, you know, to prove that there is a commitment there to climate and social justice that, as I said throughout the hustings, they go hand in hand. That's Eamon Ryan. Or sorry, that's Catherine Martin, rather. Eamon Ryan is with us now. Uh, Eamon Ryan, good morning. Catherine, good morning. And congratulations uh, on your re-election. A Thank win you. by just 48 votes. What does that say about your leadership? It says we've lots of good leadership in our party. We, I think, two very good candidates. And, uh, uh, and not just myself and Catherine, but across the party. We've grown tremendously in the last two or three years. So um, that's, a, that's, I think, one of, the, one of the issues we have in our party. We've, we have a lot of talent now, and we do have to provide space and work as a team. I think that's what Catherine, both Catherine and myself said at the end of the contest last night, is we work as a team from here, and we use all our abilities together to serve the Irish people, first and foremost, because that's the particular uh, responsibility we have in, in government. You're leading a party with members opposed and unhappy with coalition with Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. Some have left and some have put together an affiliate group with 10 elected representatives, including TD Nasa Harrigan. Are you sure you'll have her support in the doll from now? Yes, and I think we should first of all remember that you know, only three or four weeks ago now, 76% of our members said that we should go into government. Uh, and those others who didn't are also equally respected. You know, once you make a vote like that, well, then you go ahead and do, do your best with it. But the real job, and as Catherine said, I mean, firstly, we do internally, we have to manage our party to manage the success we've had, the rapid growth, uh, and to be a safe space for all sorts of different voices and people who question and criticise what we do. That's absolutely right. But also, there's a real responsibility, as I said, the first responsibility is to deliver a just transition and to do that in what we do in government, to actually get to work. Um, for example, yesterday, we allocated money for the Midlands. People are saying the just transition has to start in, in, in the Midlands with the Bordemona workers and others. So we allocated money yesterday to help that cause. The day before, we've just introduced a bill, or we got a bill through the door, the, the um, climate bill, or the Nora Levy bill, which actually re will allocate half a billion euros wasn't even uh, it, that wasn't included in the stimulus package yesterday, which is towards the same cause. So it's actually by doing, I think, is what we need to concentrate on. And I think that will, um, well, firstly, it serves the Irish people, but I think that will also help our party grow from here. But going back to the divisions within your party, why didn't you just offer Nasa Hurrigan a junior ministry? Wouldn't that have helped to ease a lot of the division within the party? First, as I said, well, she's a very important job at the moment as well for the party, but there's, we have a whole range of different talents in the party. And, uh, and what I wanted to do is there were particular ministries we got and appointed people who had specific experience and talents and skills for those particular ministries. But that doesn't stop other people having a role or, or, or other uh, work that has to be done. It has to be team effort. It has to be everyone working together. And I think Catherine's right yesterday. That's our focus now. Is We've gone through a difficult period because it was a hard call whether you go into government or not. Um, having made that decision, uh, having now completed our leadership election, I think the focus is on actually serving the Irish people by uniting as a political party and making sure we, we can do that in, or we can serve the people in a really effective way. The government is phasing out the pandemic unemployment payment and last week in the Dáil you woke up to vote against moving towards a living wage for low-paid workers. Why did you vote against it? No, it's, that's not true, Gavin. Well, we actually put an amendment through backing the commitment within the programme for government that we would move towards a, a, a living wage. And I think what we did yesterday in the stimulus package was, was an attempt, more than anything else, to actually protect Irish workers. If you look at where the money has been spent yesterday, out of that $5.2 billion, a huge amount of it is going to the wage subsidy schemes so that actually workers are protected and providing are extending which was meant to stop in the in the coming weeks instead to to keep going through to next april with the unemployment the pan, 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 pandemic unemployment payment system with, with cuts 
Yeah, but, but extending it, it was meant to finish in coming weeks. People depending and on instead, up to €350 Euro a week will now have to depend on less. But, Gavin, bar- what we're doing is borrowing $5.2 billion to try and avoid people actually running into such hardship. It's actually, I think, if you look at all, across all the papers today, they said there has never, ever been such an, a, an input of money to try and protect workers and protect the Irish people because it's the right thing to do economically because it, uh, even if it is all borrowed and that carries its own risks but actually this is a moment in time when actually the right thing to do is to borrow and support Irish workers and that's what we were doing yesterday. But by, cutting, pay- but by cutting payments to people who are depending on those low payments and by not backing moves to speed up the, the uh, increased wages to people on the lowest wages, isn't this the type of thing, also, isn't this the type of thing that, that those who are opposed to what's happening within the party, they say that this isn't the Green Party they joined? Gavin, by also at the same time, massively expanding apprenticeships and education and reskilling programs so that as those payments in April next year start to wind down, what we want to do is actually create the new jobs in the green economy, many of them, where actually people can get back to work. And that actually is the responsible Keynesian economic approach that this government is taking. And I believe it, it, we can also help. I mean, we're part of that core economic philosophy, actually is, belongs to our, our own party. But it also has a further change in terms of trying to create new jobs in the growing economic area of retrofitting and green buildings, of trying of kind of turning Irish tourism green, of actually developing whole new energy systems. That's one of the opportunities we have as to actually make a transition, not only which is just, but also creates jobs and opportunities for the Irish people. And that's what our focus is on. When you come back from the dull summer break, it'll be September. Will all children be back in the classroom by then? Yes, and the government will hope it will set out the details for those arrangements uh, in the next week or two. Um, in the next week or two, but schools are reopening in five weeks. Do you know how soon those plans will be laid out? It's expected that we will lay them out towards the, next week or, or, or within, within the next two weeks. The final details have been arranged. Finally, will you lead your party into the next general election? First and foremost, Gavin, my focus is leading it for the next few years through this incredibly difficult economic period. Uh, and uh, that's something that is, is the sole focus because I think uh, the country needs stable, strong, effective government at this moment in time. won't be easy. But we're committed, myself and Catherine and everyone else in our party, to that do whatever we can. It doesn't sound like a yes, Eamon Ryan. It means that's my initial focus, and that's what I'm actually concentrating on. Eamon Ryan, thank you very much for speaking to us this morning. We're staying with sport and going to West Cork, where 54-year-old Steve Redmond has become the first person to complete the 40-kilometre swim from Baltimore Harbour all the way out to the iconic Fastnet Rock Lighthouse and back. He did this yesterday in 15 hours and 35 minutes, and it comes eight years after he became the first person to complete the Ocean 7 Marathon Swimming Challenge, which is the equivalent of conquering the highest mountains in each of the seven continents. Steve is on the line. Steve, good morning. Congratulations. How do you feel? Good morning, Carol. Thank you. Um, yeah, very sore, very quiet. I'm in a dark room here now, staying very still, but uh, very relieved, very relieved. We were very lucky yesterday, you know. Um, it was uh, an incredible day. Uh, great skipper, Kieran Collins, and um, my team. Um, you know, you're in the water by yourself, but um, for the 15 hours, uh, you have these four people, five people on a boat, and they'll do anything to make you succeed. And um, we were fortunate yesterday after around three or four attempts. I think I hold the record for swims to the fastnet as well. So it's, yeah. um, it's you know, we're very, very lucky, thank God. So it's and, a very um, challenging swim out there. Just tell us a bit about what you faced. Absolutely. You know, it's it's a challenging day to go on a boat, really, to the fastnet. Um, we looked at this for, uh, this is a body of work for, that's lasted four years, you know, um, we formed the Fastnet Swim uh, Company down here, well, group down here for to bring people here, and um, we have the best water in the world, without a shadow of a doubt, I know everybody says that, but between here and Northern Ireland with the North Channel, it's just incredible, yesterday, like for around two hours, I had around 15, 20 minky whales just tailing me and underneath me, a couple of humpbacks, uh, you know, we were very lucky. It's a very difficult swim because of the tides. 
the weather, the Gascanons, which is the gap between Shirk and, and uh, Cape, and the timing, you know, it's all up to the skipper, really. You know, you put your faith in him and he can get you out there because there's always a tide running at the fast net. And if you get it wrong, you're never coming back. And then you have to turn around. It's a real a mental challenge, turning around. I've done Fastnet to Baltimore, from Baltimore to Skull twice as a training swims for the seven swims, you know. But uh, to turn around and go back the way you came over the wasteland, I call it really, from the Fastnet Rock in back into the Leah Cape was incredibly difficult. And that's where I got beaten two or three times in the last couple of years. And you say so, the, da- um, the danger is not sharks, but jellyfish. Jellyfish really killer. Yeah, well, there was loads of blue sharks. They, you know, you kind of just have the music in your head and you, you kind of roar at them and laugh at them and they won't come near you really. They're more just inquisitive. But uh, the jellyfish will kill you. Yeah, the jellyfish is like death by a thousand strokes. They'll just whack you on the head and sting you and into your nose and your tongue. It's a real glamorous sport, this sport, you know, but there's an awful lot of people doing it and we have, what, maybe around a dozen people lined up to do Fastnet this year. And uh, I'm a dinosaur. Dinosaur, you know, I, I am. I'm an old person, and was it very so many cold? Told, yes, it was eleven degrees. Eleven degrees. Oh, and your, wi- your went wife went along in 12. the boat, so she was there to support you. Yes, my wife and my daughter, and uh, Noel Brown and Jacinta, Noel's partner, and Kieran Collins from Baltimore Angling was the skipper, the pilot, really. And um, they wanted. They asked me last night why I didn't complain, and I really said there was no point because I knew she wouldn't let me out. <laughs> She'd leave me. <laughs> She just leave me there, okay. and um, once you have um, people like that, um, sorry, okay, you break down a little bit. I know, Steve. Um, once you have people like that, you can't fail. Well, well done to you, Steve Redmond from West Cork, and I hope you get a bit of rest today in that dark room where you are. Thank you very much for joining us. So the government has published its so-called green list of countries in future people arriving or returning from the 15 countries that made the cut won't have to restrict their movements. The 15 are Malta, Finland, Norway, Italy, Hungary, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Cyprus, Slovakia, Greece, Greenland, Gibraltar, Monaco and San Marino. Many popular destinations, including Spain, France, Germany, Portugal, the United States and Britain, are excluded. The statement also reiterates, however, that while the pandemic continues, it's safer not to travel. This morning, a new tally from the Reuters news agency says that globally there have now been more than 15 million coronavirus cases. 36 new cases were confirmed here yesterday, the highest daily figure in a number of weeks. Joining us in studio this morning is the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Simon Coveney. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me in. People will be wondering, first of all, about inclusions and exclusions and about how this list was compiled. So how did this list come about? So this is a list that's been promised now for a number of weeks and and that's why there's been you know quite a lot of media coverage in relation to countries that would or wouldn't be on the green list. Uh, and what we're doing in relation to international travel is what Ireland has done uh, in every other uh, policy approach in terms of COVID-19 and that is to be really cautious because the first uh, and most important priority has to be protecting people's public health here in Ireland. Uh, and so we are slow to... Uh, to open up international travel. Um, And what we are now saying is uh, that we are making a distinction in terms of travel advice between countries that represent the same risk level or less um, as Ireland uh, and the rest of the countries of the world and of Europe. Uh, And so we're using data from the European Centre of Disease Control Uh, which essentially benchmarks countries on the basis of the number of positive tests per 100,000 population over the last 14 days. And Ireland is at a figure of 4.9 at the moment. And so we have said that any country that has a figure of more than five uh, would remain, uh, in terms of travel advice, uh, as no non-essential travel because of risk levels linked to COVID-19. Any country under that threshold effectively is the same risk level or less. In fact, all of all 15 travel destinations are, a low, are at a lower figure than Ireland, uh, which is uh, 4.8, 4.9. Um, and so what we're saying is that the risk level in these destinations is the same or less as, as is the risk level in Ireland. And therefore, the travel advice for those countries technically 
changes now, uh, which means that they don't have to uh, restrict their movement when they when, when people come from there, whether it's Irish people coming home or whether it's non-Irish people coming into Ireland, they don't have to restrict their movement for 14 days as everybody else is being asked to do. But does the advice really change? Because you're still asking people not to leave the country. Well, I mean, the, the message from government uh, is still clear that the safest thing to do is not to take your holidays abroad. Uh, to stay at home, look after your family, spend your money at at home uh, and holiday at home. Uh, But we know also that about 50,000 people a week are leaving the country. And I have an obligation as a Minister for Foreign Affairs to give them guidance uh, on the basis of risk that is attached to that travel. Uh, That's what the Department of Foreign Affairs does. Uh, It gives travel advice. It it has what's called a TravelWise app which advises people uh, on on the dangers and and the risk levels of travelling internationally. And we know that there are different risk levels depending on what country you go to. Okay, so the bottom line then is that if somebody goes to any one of these countries and then returns, they won't have to restrict their movements when they come back to Ireland. They're free to go about their business. That's true. And I I listened to Pat Dawson earlier this morning saying that nothing has changed uh, as of the, uh, the government meeting last night. That isn't true. Uh, and in terms of uh, travel insurance companies, for example, will will make decisions on the basis of the official travel advice on the Department of Foreign Affairs website. The, atri- the official travel advice now for these 15 destinations is that they don't represent a higher risk level than Ireland. Are you urging then the insurance companies to change what they have been doing and to offer insurance to people who are going to any of the 15 well, on I the would, list? I would expect that they would respond to the official travel advice on the Department of uh, Foreign Affairs website. That's, that is what they would normally do. I do want to emphasise the point that the government... The government's message is that the safest thing to do for everybody is not to take their holidays abroad, to take them at home in relation to COVID-19. But if you are leaving the country, and we know that many people are, nothing as many as would normally leave at this time of year, but some people are, it's important that people make informed decisions. And I think the government has an obligation uh, to give them that information. But does this list make any sense? I mean, how does somebody go to Gibraltar without passing through Spain? Well, if you're transiting through an airport, and we've checked this with the World Health Organization, um, uh, our Minister for Health spoke to to Mike Ryan, uh, who's a senior figure in the World Health Organization, and they don't have a significant concern at all with transit airports, if you like. So So you'd be allowed to fly into Spain and travel on to Gibraltar? So if you're flying through an airport uh, onto another destination, it's the destination that you're heading to or the destination that you originate from. That's the country that determines uh, uh, whether uh, you are uh, effectively on the so-called green list or not. Okay, so uh, again, presumably the same would be the case with Monaco. It's highly unlikely that yeah. you'd go there without passing through France. Yeah, so you'd uh, um, so you'd fly there via a French airport. I mean, it's obviously different if you stay in in France for the weekend and then fly on to Monaco. If you actually leave the airport and spend some time in a country, then that is the country that that determines the risk status, of course. Leo Varadkar said yesterday, if the travel advice for countries on the green list isn't different to advice for other countries, and it's not because you're still saying to people don't go there, then we would be better off not having a green list at all. So can you blame people for being confused? Well, look, I mean, I I can accept that there has been some confusion uh, in the last number of days, which is why it was important that the government made a definitive decision last night. Uh, And it is important to say that the travel advice has changed in relation to countries that are on this so-called green list. But you still don't want people to go to them. So to that extent, has it changed? But the overall message from government uh, is that uh, the safest thing to do is to stay at home. Uh, That's a very clear message. But it is important for people who are travelling, and many people are making the decision to travel. We'd rather they weren't, but they are, about 50,000 a week. It's important that those people have clear information in relation to risk levels that impacts on travel insurance and other decisions that they need to make. And, of course, that they have information in terms of what countries, if they're returning from, they will be asked to restrict their movement for 14 days, okay. which and is a be, significant impediment And to be clear about that, it is restrict your movement. There's no need for people to self-isolate because that used to be the case, but somewhere along the line, the advice was changed. The advice uh, was changed for good reason, and that's because if you are under our contract t- tracing system here, if you've been a close contact, of somebody who's tested positive, you are asked to restrict your movement. Uh, That is the appropriate course of action if somebody is at risk of having COVID-19. And so we're applying that same 
uh, restriction to people who come into Ireland from countries that have a higher risk level of COVID-19 than Ireland has. In other words, we're assuming that people who come in from countries that have a higher risk level than Ireland has uh, to exposure to COVID-19, that they're in the same risk category as someone who is uh, who has been in close contact with someone who is, may have tested is positive. Is that enough? Because the government always makes a point of saying that it follows the advice of the National Emergency Team or NEFET. But looking at the minutes for the NEFET meeting on the 8th of May, they say they're of the view that persons arriving into Ireland from overseas should be required to undertake a period of self-isolation for 14 days at a designated facility rather than on the basis of an individual's own self-declared plan. Why didn't the government take that advice? Well, because we don't think it's doable. uh, And we also think that other countries that have tried this um, uh, have uh, have seen a lot of problems associated with it. So if you take Australia, for example, uh, they they tested that system uh, in terms of requiring people to self-isolate in a government-provided facility. That resulted actually in the creation of clusters. If you put a lot of people that have come from abroad into one hotel and keep them there for 14 days, there is a danger that it becomes a cluster in its own right. Uh, and so yeah we, but there are other places looked, where it hasn't been a well, problem nobody's been talking about problems in New Zealand where they operate something well, similar well New Zealand are dealing with much smaller numbers uh, and have an entirely different uh, set of circumstances to Ireland mm, they're not part of the European Union clearly feel very strongly about this because again on the 11th of June the minutes of their meeting on that day say that their stance on this hasn't changed and that what they want is a mandatory regime of self-isolation for 14 days at a designated facility for all persons arriving into Ireland from overseas yeah I know and but Neffet also say that they advise the government uh, the government needs to make decisions we've looked internationally uh, at that model. We've considered it seriously uh, and we don't regard it as a as an approach that makes sense from an Irish perspective and we think it, it could cause more problems than it solves, quite frankly. Instead, what we have done has worked. International travel in Ireland is down dramatically. We only have about 7 or 8% of the numbers that would normally be travelling at this time of year actually travelling. If you look at the United States, only 2% of, of, of passenger numbers coming from the US normally at this time of year are actually coming to Ireland. So, And yet every time Neffet give a news conference, we hear concerns from Ronan Glynn and from others yeah. about the increased incidence of coronavirus here because of international yeah. travel. And just to reassure people that, that there have been no instances uh, of the spread of, uh, of of virus being introduced from any one of the destinations that are on the green list. None. Uh, despite the fact that there have, of course, been uh, instances where people have come from abroad and have contributed to the spread of the virus mm, here. There, there's quite a is, lengthy list at this is, stage, yeah, isn't yeah, there? Because true. people will have heard it, it listed at those But none of the destinations that actually we have put on the green list today, just to be clear. The other thing I'd like to say is that um, it, the uh, naming uh, travel destinations wasn't the only decision we made last night. We're also... Uh, adding significantly to the protocols in airports now uh, in relation to what we're asking of international travellers. So when you come into Ireland, um, uh, we are going to move the passenger locator form online effectively uh, to make it an awful lot more accurate to ensure that when people give information in order for them to be able to get on the plane, the, uh, uh, the, the accuracy of that information will need to be verified. Um, When's that likely all, to happen? Uh, uh, by the 10th of August. Uh, that was the government decision last night. And also, in parallel with that, we're going to set up a, a, a call centre, uh, which has a lot more capacity than we currently have today, to make sure that everyone who comes into Ireland gets a follow-up call from that call centre, not just, by the way, to check that they are where, where they say they're going to be for 14 days, but also to make sure that they're fully up to speed in terms of public health advice linked to COVID-19. So the systems we're putting in place are becoming more robust all the time, dealing with capacity issues. But also, I think the, the government had an obligation to make sure that travel advice is accurate, linked to risk levels and data, uh, as opposed to generalised messaging. And that's the change that happened last night. Your statement last night, it also says that processes to restrict flight or passenger travel in certain circumstances will also be explored. What does that mean? 
Yeah, so um, what we're doing is we're looking at countries that may effectively become hotspots for COVID-19 in the months ahead, uh, or indeed regions within countries, uh, and looking at ways in which we can uh, deal with that risk uh, in terms of international travel. Um, uh, So might there then be restrictions on people arriving from countries where there's a particular problem? There could be. Uh, And so what we're now doing is uh, we're looking at... uh, Last night, we made decisions in relation to countries or territories that have very low risk levels uh, in relation to travel advice. We're now, over the next few weeks, going to also look at regions or countries that may have a very high instance and therefore a high risk level in terms of whether we should introduce further restrictions on international travel from those areas. So this would be a red list to accompany the green list, would it? Well, no, I don't think we'll deal with it like that. I think it'll be more targeted than that. Um, uh, And, uh, you know, it could involve a a requirement to test before you come, for example, to Ireland, uh, uh, or indeed uh, looking at other international best practice as to how how you can uh, provide more restriction. So, for example, one of the things that we will have in place in the next few weeks is we'll have random testing in our airports for for people coming from non-green list countries. Uh, we will have uh, testing facilities available in airports for people who, who, who may have symptoms uh, of COVID-19 coming through the, the airport uh, and the airport may have a concern about that. So there are things we can do to constantly improve our protocols uh, and management of risk linked to international travel. But the decision we made last night, I think, was an important step forward. Ireland can't close itself off from the rest of the world forever. And I just, if I could finish the point, um, this is a a virus that Ireland, like the rest of the world, will have to learn to live with for quite some time. Uh, And so we changed our official travel advice last night. But the overall message from government is still simple and clear. The safest thing to do for you and your family Uh, is to stay at home. Okay, and just finally then, to pick up on something you said earlier, you mentioned uh, communication issues. Can you promise people that in future the communication will be better? Because we do have this situation this morning where you have unnamed people from your own party saying that the government has made a hames of this. Uh, I mean, I don't think the government has made a hames of this at all. I mean, the government has uh, introduced restrictions on international travel that have had a dramatic impact in terms of the numbers of people visiting Ireland and the number of Irish people going abroad for their holidays. So they've worked. What we did last night is we've refined that uh, to to actually ensure that the travel advice is more accurately linked to official risk levels on the basis of data. Uh, And I think that is the kind of development that people should welcome. Simon Coveney, Minister for Foreign Affairs, thank you for joining us on Morning Ireland. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.